when you are skiing down a mountain slope or riding your bike along a forest trail. It's hard enough just to concentrate on what you're doing, let alone try to capture a video of the moment. But what if you could just take a drone out of your backpack, ask to follow along and film you, while it effortlessly avoids any physical obstacles along the way? Today's guest has done exactly that, and in fact, has enabled many more use cases for drones. Adam Bree is co-founder and CEO of the unicorn startup Skydio, which produces drones that use AI to take the pilot out of the equation. Adam, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Well, I'm so glad we get to talk about everything you're doing. Now, let's maybe dive right in. What does Skydio build? What is a Skydio drone and how is it different from other drones? So we make autonomous drones. Um, the motivation for starting the company was looking out and seeing all the incredible things that people were starting to do with drones and that they wanted to do with drones. You know, in the consumer world, capturing amazing video. In the industrial world, there's all these kinds of inspection, mapping tasks. Um, in public safety and defense, you can use drones to get really useful information without putting people in harm's way. Um, and then there's also the possibility of doing physical goods delivery. So the potential of what drones can do is incredible, but we felt like none of this stuff was really going to scale and work the way that it should if you needed to have an expert pilot there flying the thing. And that's what motivated us to start the company. That's what we've been working on since we started in, in 2014 is giving the drone the ability to fly itself with the skills of an expert pilot. And the goal is not to remove the human from the equation, human input, Human ingenuity is still really important for a lot of these these missions and tasks, but the goal is to to allow the the person to work at a higher level to think in terms of what they want to get done, and let the drone automate a lot of the lower level piloting, avoiding obstacles, automating data collection kinds of things. So at the most basic level, that's what that's what we're all about as a company. Now I've actually seen your drones, but for our audience, could you describe what they look like? You know, at a high level, they look like a normal drone. They've got four motors, they've got a camera on front, um, but what makes them special is the autonomy system. So we have three 4K navigation cameras on top. These are fisheye cameras. So each of them sees sort of the whole top hemisphere. And then we've got three on bottom. So there's six total navigation cameras. It's about 45 megapixels total of navigation data. And then we've got uh, NVIDIA TX2 computer embedded inside, which is running all of our AI and autonomy algorithms. And all of the hardware is really designed to enable the autonomy software, which is where we've made the biggest investments. So the things that really make them special, you can't see, but you can see when you, you can't see it in, in the device itself, but you can see it when it flies and the, the kinds of behavior that it's capable of. Now, I've seen your drone in action, and I think one of the most amazing things about it is the way it deals with obstacles or humans. It somehow is able to see them, understand them. It doesn't have a map of the environment, it just goes into a new environment and it's able to navigate that. Can you say a bit about how is that possible? What's the technology behind building something like that? So when we started, we made a really big bet on computer vision. So my co-founders and I came from research backgrounds. We met as grad students at MIT working on basically the same stuff. Like our lab was building autonomous quadcopters and autonomous fixed wing vehicles going back to 2007. But when we started in 2014, you know, we made a big bet on computer vision and this was at a time where it seemed much crazier than it does today. You know, there were a couple of research examples 
of people doing like basic low speed flight using uh, visual state estimation, so SLAM type, type techniques. I think no or, or almost no even research examples of doing collision avoidance using drones or using computer vision. So we basically felt like all the information you need to make good decisions is in the, the image data. The challenge is algorithmic is extracting that, but the pace of progress on those algorithms in 2014, which is, is just continuing exponentially today, is really incredible. So there's a number of different components in play inside the software system. Um, and the people who've worked on, on any kind of autonomous system, a lot of them would be familiar. One of the ones that we've invested the most in is this three-dimensional understanding using these fisheye cameras. And there's a lot of algorithmic challenges that go into that. We're using fisheye rolling shutter cameras. So anybody who's worked on computer vision, especially geometric computer vision, knows that rolling shutter makes things challenging and it makes things especially challenging in a context where you have fisheye lenses um, because a lot of the linearity assumptions that might make it tractable just kind of aren't there and fall apart. At the core of that geometric perception system is uh, a deep neural network that's computing essentially flow between the images um, and then using that flow. For those not familiar, flow is basically estimating correspondence vectors between two images. So if you see something in the left image and the right image, and then you can find the vector that stitches them together, uh, that vector is the key to figuring out how far away the thing is. Um, so that's kind of the one of the foundational elements to understanding the geometry around the drone. Um, but then getting the intelligent behavior requires making predictions about what's going to happen. So that requires predicting how a person's going to move. If you see a person, it requires having a, a fairly good understanding of the vehicle's dynamics in order to, to predict how different inputs might result in different physical movement in the world. And then, of course, the real magic and challenge is getting all of these systems working in real time in a compute-constrained environment reliably and robustly enough to give the drone its, its intelligent behavior. Now, on the podcast, we've had several guests who work in the self-driving space, including Andre Karpathy from Tesla, Chris Urmson from Aurora. Yeah. And one of the big things there is whether to use cameras just cameras that will expand it with LiDAR and or other sensors. And it sounds like yeah. with Skydio, you made a similar bet to the Tesla bet, which is camera only can get the job done. Is that right? We did, yeah. And I think that the problems are very related. The self-driving car problem on the ground, the self-flying drone problem in the air. The, the ingredients, I think, a lot of the ingredients from a, an algorithm standpoint and from a sensor standpoint can be the same. The recipe is different and the trade-offs are different. You know, some things are much easier in the air, some things are harder. The stakes are generally lower, like we don't have a person sitting in our drone and we're not flying, you know, with a bunch of other person agents. But the, you know, the big things that push you towards computer vision in a lot of contexts, I think, is like general three-dimensional omnidirectional perception and then size, weight, and cost constraints, which for a flying vehicle are pretty extreme, much more so than you get in a car. So if computer vision is the right answer for cars, which it may be, it's definitely the right answer for drones where you really care about size, weight, power, and cost. Now, as you talk about the vision for the drones, you talk about rolling shutter cameras, fisheye lenses. Can you say a bit more about, you know, how are they maybe different from the cameras we usually use? And, you know, we're just, I guess, doing a web video call or something. Yeah. And, and why did you make those choices? Because you're saying they make things hard, yet you went for them, right? Yeah. So actually, the, the choices that we made take the sensors that we're using much closer to the sensors 
and cameras that we use in our phones. And that was an intentional choice because there's so much investment going in there. It's worth sort of rewinding a little bit to think about the alternative. So classically, when in a research context, in a lot of sort of industrial machine vision context, people use these very specialized computer vision cameras. And one of the, the dominant features of almost all of those is what's called a global shutter, which essentially means that every pixel on the image sensor is exposed at exactly the same instant, which requires essentially requires storage for every pixel to live on the sensor itself, which means that some of the surface area of the sensor is taken up, you know, in the silicon manufacturing process is taken up by storage, uh, not taken up by photosensitive pixel area. And so you make a trade-off there, you get sort of, it's effectively as if you have a smaller sensor for the same physical surface area if you want it to be global shutter. Uh, by contrast, almost every single sensor that we were used to using in our phones, even in, in DSLRs and other things, are typically rolling shutter sensors where every line is exposed one at a time very quickly in succession. So you have a 30 millisecond exposure time, every line will be exposed for 30 milliseconds, and then the camera just rolls down them very quickly, but not instantaneously. And what that means is that you don't need storage on the sensor, uh, but so you can get more surface area, you get like a higher performing, lower cost sensor for the same surface area. Uh, but you then have this problem where not everything is exposed at the same moment in time. So if you take your cell phone and you wave it around while you take an image, you'll actually see this, this kind of warping effect, which is maybe slightly annoying for taking pictures that you're gonna look at, but becomes incredibly complex for computer vision because you can't make the assumption that every, every pixel is exposed at the same moment in time. So the reason why we did that is because basically you can just get higher performing, lower cost sensors in the sense that you get better data, better dynamic range than with a, a conventional global shutter. Um, and we, you know, we push the complexity of that into the math and the algorithms to extract the information we care about. But, it, you know, in general, we, we tend to make the trade off of like we would rather have the signal that we care about be present in the data, even if it's hard to extract than than not. So I like this. The way you explain this, Adam, and that makes me wonder about the AI side of things, of course, because you're saying effectively that as long as the information is there, it's okay if it's there in a complicated way, because I, yeah. the AI will somehow handle it later. So how do you do that? How, how do you make sure the AI handles the rolling shutter, the fisheye lenses in a way that it gives you the results you want? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'm I'm laughing a little bit because this is kind of a, a joke that I have going back and forth with the team working on this, where they will sometimes complain that like, oh, you know, if we, there's something about our sensor configuration is making it really nasty to deal with the, the thing, you know, there's like this weird pattern in the data that like makes it hard to get the information we care about it. And my retort to this, which has become a joke is like, well, if there's this weird pattern in the data that makes it hard to get what we care about, that means it's observable. That means we should be able to calibrate it out. Like the, the, the worse the effect it has on the thing that we actually care about, the more inherently observable it is and the more we should be able to come up with some algorithm to calibrate it and deal with it. Um, so they're, they're very sick of hearing this from me now, but it's, you know, at a first principles level, it's, it's at least true in theory. So this particular rolling shutter fisheye thing was one of the big transitions from our first product, Skydio R1, to our second product family, Skydio 2 and, and X2, which we're selling now. So on R1, we had 12 
con conventional computer vision cameras arranged in stereo pairs. So we had basically like one stereo pair facing on every side of the cube. And we were using more classical computer vision stereo algorithms where you basically have a left image, a right image, you rectify them, which means that you do like a calibration alignment. And then that turns the stereo problem into a straight linear search along an epipolar line, which is just a straight horizontal line in the other image. You know, there's a lot of research into how you do that with conventional algorithms over the last 20, 30 years. With Skydio 2, we went to rolling shutter fisheye and all the assumptions that make the conventional stereo work just basically fall over. That was a, a big bet and big transition from using conventional computer vision to machine learning to do this. Um, and, you know, this was again, sort of like you could look at the academic research and glimpse and see some results that maybe made you think this would be possible. But the team really uh, did a phenomenal job of coming up with the right network setup, the right training methodologies and the right kind of input output framework with the cameras that we have to, to like calibrate and, and format the data in a way that uh, makes it all work. So, you know, there's no single magic answer in there. Um, but in my experience, the best sort of deep learning algorithms tend to be built by folks who really have a deep first principles understanding of the problem. You know, it's not just sort of like pulling an off the shelf network and throwing some data at it and hoping for the best. It's really thinking critically about the structure of the problem that's there, how you can set up the network in the right way to uh, to leverage that structure. And, and in particular, how you set up the training data um, to to and and the, the cost functions that you're optimizing against to really get the signals that you care about. There's some secret sauce in there, but that's basically high level of what we're doing. Now I'm curious because whenever a neural network is trained, the most canonical setup is that there is a input and an output that's supposed to be predicted. And at training time, humans yeah. provide the outputs also. And so there are labels. Right. And so yeah. for a Skydio drone doing what it's doing, I mean, what are the right labels? <laughs> is it even set up that yeah. way, the training? Yeah. One of the most exciting things about drones is that it's kind of like a wide open creative space in terms of designing the algorithms and designing the behaviors of the drone. In the self-driving car world, it's pretty clear, like the, the ultimate goal of self-driving car is basically just to follow the rules of the road. And it's pretty clear what those are. Now, getting it to do that is incredibly hard, but it's like a very constrained problem. With, with drones, it's like, it's pretty wide open. You know, there's examples of people flying drones today in manual ways, um, and you can look at what they do. But there's all these sort of new applications and new use cases that can really be enabled and invented through autonomy. So I'm not directly addressing your question here, but I'm just sort of pointing to the fact that it's this unconstrained problem, which sometimes makes the like it less obvious what the like what the label is or what the like obvious training methodology might be for behaviors. In the case of the depth perception algorithms, which basically come back to optical flow. That is a more constrained problem, but it's much harder to get the labels um, because the, the sort of ground truth labels for that from actual data would be the correct depth and the, the true 3D geometry. So there's, you know, there's research examples of, of people using uh, kind of unsupervised techniques and enforcing consistency between motion and geometry and, and photometric appearance. You know, I would say that we were reading all the research and, and doing some of our own research. The thing that um, is really key for us is is the blend between synthetic and, and real data. And, you know, I think one of the sort of pleasantly surprising things for us, and I think we're probably not alone in this, is how much you can get done with synthetic data if you're really careful and thoughtful about how you create it and how you train on it. And, and to me, this is like 
you know, frankly, it's still kind of a miracle how well this works, how we can train on synthetic data and then expose to real world data that the thing has never seen before. Um, and it performs extremely, extremely well. And, you know, the first time this happened, it was kind of like mind boggling in development. But of course, if it didn't work, we, we wouldn't have the capabilities that we have now. And it's so interesting, of course, because in synthetic data, at least for things like geometry, the labels can come for free. They're built into your simulator. Exactly. So now there's nobody involved in, in the labeling. It's just a simulation engine providing it. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing exactly. how well it can work. <laughs> yeah. Especially thinking about the videos. I mean, when I watched the videos of, of the Skydio drones, I was watching a bunch of them again last night, and I see the Skydio drone following somebody who's on a, on a mountain bike going through the woods. I mean, the drone is not just above everything. The drone is with the biker under some of the foliage of the trees, then popping up. It's just, it seems like it it really understands the 3d even when it's that detailed it's not walls or something like that it, it's a very fine detailed 3d yeah it is and it's you know it's coming out of like very careful design of the whole pipeline of training and and getting some feedback from real world data and then the other piece of it which is really key is the motion planning system which is constantly predicting into the future predicting where a person's going to go and then figuring out what the what the drone should do. And that's one where we've, we are using less deep learning today, although we have actually done some research on this. We, we wrote a blog post about um, something closer to an end-to-end -end deep learn system, um, which I think may be somewhere out there in our future. But the motion planning system is, is basically optimizing against a bunch of different objectives continually in real time to figure out what the drone should do. And in order to develop that, there's a lot of real world testing, but there's a ton of infrastructure that has a lot of different scenarios that we care about where we're, uh, we're constantly developing against those things. And it's, you know, it's really not an accident that when you go out and fly the thing that it, it has this sort of like intelligent predictive behavior where it seems to be making the right trade-offs in the right situations of like, should it go through the gap or should it go around or should it go above? Um, all these things are com coming out of very carefully designed cost functions and balancing in, in different scenarios that we care about. It's really impressive. Now, Let's say a consumer buys a Skydio drone and receives the drone, you know, maybe <laughs> they open the box. What, mm. what can they do with it? And in term, I mean, we've you, talked a lot about the AI side of things, but I imagine the consumer is not directly exposed to that. And, and it's yeah. more like a regular drone to them, but with extreme capabilities. Really? Yeah. So the thing that makes it really unique and powerful is the ability to follow and film moving subjects and capture amazing videos. So the you know, we started developing this product in 2014. The vision for it is we want it to be as if you had a professional film crew there with you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And that is basically distilled down through a bunch of AI and autonomy into a very simple user experience where you can hold the drone in your hand, you can connect to it from your phone, fly it through an app and, and tell it to take off. It will take off from your hand, turn around, automatically start tracking you. And from there, if you want, you can put your phone in your pocket uh, and you can go running or hiking or biking or skiing or whatever, and the drone will will follow you and film you. And you can choose if you want it to be in front or to the side or above, you know, you get sort of that level of control. You can, there's different, we call them cinematic skills. You can tell it to do a droney where it will pull back and then, and then come back towards you, which creates a, a really nice cinematic effect. That's kind of the, the core autonomy capability. 
but you can also, if you want, fly it uh, manually or semi-manually with what we think of as like AI pilot assistance, where you can uh, buy an accessory art controller, you can fly it with joysticks, and you're giving it a command to fly forward, fly sideways, turn around, and it will follow that command, but it's using the same autonomy system to look at the 3D structure of the world around it and then predict into the future and basically reinterpret your commands to keep itself safe. So for example, if you go up to a forest and just jam the joystick forward, if it can, it'll find a way through all the trees. It'll weave left and right and up and down to the extent that it needs to. So it's sort of like flying with a magic safety bubble around it, which enables you again to create really fantastic footage that you wouldn't, wouldn't get any other way. And then some people also just like flying the drones, you know, they, regardless of whether you're taking video, it's, it's fun to have this tool that's sort of at your control, at your disposal. And, uh, you know, it's especially one of the things that we see with our customers, which I think is really exciting is people will let their young kids fly the drone in a way that you never would with, with something that didn't have this technology because they know that it's inherently much safer. So that, that's kind of the consumer experience. There's also an incredibly exciting wide range of industrial, commercial, sort of professional user applications, which is something that we've really aggressively expanded into over the last couple of years with autonomy capabilities geared specifically for those, which we could, we could also talk more about. I love the consumer experience, uh, which I've seen. I mean, we've been together at actually one of our former guests, uh, Anka Dragan on the podcast, who were at our wedding and you yeah. had your drone there, you know, <laughs> yeah. do photography for the wedding, which was amazing. Um, yeah. But I am curious about the non-consumer side. Absolutely. Yeah. What are some of the more industrial maybe or other yeah. commercial use cases you're seeing? You know, we've learned a lot about this over the last few years. We, you know, we, some of this was in our sites when we started the company, but as we've gotten customers in these markets, but there's across all these sort of infrastructure industries, so energy utilities, telecommunications, rail, construction, you know, transportation infrastructure with bridges and roads, there's just an enormous amount of inspection and maintenance work that goes on. And it's kind of interesting because most of it happens out of sight. Most people don't even realize that this is happening. But if you just think about the scale of like an energy utility with tens of thousands of, of miles of, of power lines and you know enormous power plants, just to pick one example, basically this stuff is just constantly experiencing issue. You know, it's like through nobody's fault, but it's just very complex, sensitive physical infrastructure where things break down, things rust out, things get damaged by wind. Um, and it's different in different industries, but the common themes are basically like a lot of manual effort, typically a lot of risk to the people involved and a lot of heavy machinery. So, you know, for energy utilities, they might be flying crude helicopters, uh, which cost hundreds or up to about thousand dollars an hour, fully loaded to like to go along and inspect this stuff. Or they might have people climbing up in every transmission tower to look for rust and other damage and to make sure that the, the insulators and the, the cables and everything are, are still safe and secure. And so the really big opportunity is to make it just frictionless to have a full digital picture of critical physical infrastructure. And drones, manual drones, are starting to be used for some of these tasks where organizations will either pay like a, a drone service provider, so a network of drone pilots to come in and do this stuff, or they'll they'll try to train some of their own operators to do it. It's exciting because you can, you, it's sort of working today. You know, people are, are delivering value and getting compelling results with manual drones, but it's still just, in our view at least, just a fraction of a percent sort of 
deployed compared to what it, it could be and will be. And if you can make it frictionless to collect the data, you unlock this entirely new, exciting world where you just have a digital picture of your infrastructure. And then you can start to think about running automatic damage detection and, and change detection and basically like proactive notification for, for issue areas. So that's the big theme. And that applies to a bunch of different industries. And that's what our, our products are being used for today. So people are, are flying the drones either semi-manually or they're using automation with a, a product that we call 3D Scan, uh, where you basically just tell the drone, here's the, the structure of the scene that I care about. And then it will adaptively map the whole thing in real time and then use that map to guarantee high quality photo coverage of the whole structure scene from every angle. So the output of that is basically you know, a full visual record of the the asset that you can turn into a 3D model. People call this like a 3D digital twin, or you can just look at the individual photos as sort of like a, a visual record of, of what's there. So that's something that we're incredibly excited about where there's a lot of applications today, but I think there's just tremendous growth opportunity as these things become easier to use. And, you know, this is one of the things that we talk about is like we want the drone to adapt itself to the user and the application rather than the other way around. So, you know, one of our big goals is to make it so, you know, for example, a construction company doesn't need to have like specialist drone pilots. They can give the drones to the people or part of their, you know, normal sort of like engineering workforce. And this just becomes another tool for them to use. Now, as you think of the full potential of, of drones, naturally you're, you're building the platform enabling any applications behind, you know, whatever somebody might want to do, but are there some specific applications that you are personally excited about and hope to see in the future? Yeah. So, you know, the inspection work that we talked about, I'm super excited about, you know, I think that spending time on the ground with, with customers in this industry is it's just impossible not to be excited and optimistic, both about what they're doing today, but really like what can be enabled over time as the products get better. And that applies in a lot of different industries. You know, I think energy utilities are one of the really compelling ones because it's, you know, it's core infrastructure that we all depend on. The stakes are really high. You know, there's examples, uh, especially in California, of things going wrong and causing fires and, and it being incredibly dangerous and expensive. And I think that's something where, where drones can really help a lot. So that's one that I'm, I'm super excited about. Another one that I'm personally very excited about, which I think is more controversial and, and somewhat polarizing, but I, I don't think it should be. And, and something that, you know, we've, we're being proactive on this front is public safety use of drones. So, you know, we have a number of public safety agencies using our drones today in what we call kind of the drone in the trunk model, where you have a drone um, in the police vehicle and on a case by case basis, you can you can use it for all kinds of things. So there's a lot of search and rescue work, like if there's a missing person and you know you need to search a wide area, drones can be a, a very useful tool. The capabilities that we have enable you to do search. And, you know, there's an example where a car uh, went off the road and rolled down the, the side of a hill and was down in an area that would be very difficult for a person to get to, not impossible, but difficult and time consuming. And the officer was able to fly one of our drones down there very quickly to see if there was still a person in the car and if they needed help. So there's search and rescue work. There's also kind of this, tactical stuff where you you know you might have somebody who's say hanging out in someone's backyard and is potentially armed and you don't know if they're armed you don't know what the officer doesn't doesn't know exactly what the situation is and and one possibility is for them to go there back there themselves but that means potentially going into a dangerous situation where they're at the very least going to have their hand on their gun they might have their gun drawn or you can fly a drone back there and see what's actually going on and calibrate the response appropriately you know even in these kind of like tense tactical situations i think drones have enormous benefit. And then, 
the future possibility here, when you think about drones and docks, is having drones basically automatically, or not necessarily automatically, but with with very simple operator input, respond to 911 calls. Um, where if a call comes in, you know, it might take five or 10 minutes for a responding officer to get there, but you could have a drone there in, in a minute, some situations, maybe even less, which I think at maturity is really a transformative technology for keeping people safer. And you, you, know, you can imagine if there's like a violent crime in progress, being able to have a drone there on scene could change dramatically the way that situation unfolds. It could serve as a deterrent. Um, it could interrupt whatever's happening. And at the very least, it it could provide real-time sort of evidence to officers to figure out who's guilty and who's not and, and inform their, their actions afterwards. Um, so there's examples of agencies like sort of making this work today with manual drones, but I think it's something that, that we can really make happen in a scalable way with autonomous drones. The flip side of this is that we, you know, we don't want to live in a world where we've got police drones flying overhead 24-7, like spying on us. And I think that that's a concern that I have that we have as a company. And so we've been proactive in developing a set of principles, which we call the five C's, which is like sort of five core ideas for, for public safety use of drones, um, which we're proactive with with customers and, and customers in that space and regulators. And, and I think that if we do it right, as not just us as a company, but as an industry, there is an opportunity for um, dramatic positive impact, but it's going to take both thoughtfulness from a product standpoint and thoughtfulness from sort of an adoption and a regulatory and policy standpoint. So Adam, you mentioned how Skydio wants to responsibly engage drones and you have this principle of the five C's. Can you say a bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So they're, they're basically five core ideas that, that we think are a useful framework for industry and, and agencies to set up scalable drone programs. Um, so they cover things like community engagement and transparency, civil liberties, cybersecurity, common operating procedures, and then, and then clear oversight and accountability. So each of these has sort of downstream concepts work associated with them. But, you know, to pick one community engagement and transparency, this is, I think this is really like a, a super critical thing. And the agencies that have had the most success with their drone programs have been very forward leaning and reaching out to community organizations, sometimes like the local chapter of the ACLU to talk about what they're doing and get feedback on how they implement it. And also doing a lot of just sort of public demonstration of, you know, here's what we're doing, here's how it works, here's why we use it. Um, and I think that's really key. And the, the more powerful the technology becomes, the more that you think about. So the concept that I talked about before, having drones respond to 911 calls, we call that drone as first responder. Um, if you want that to work, you really need and you really want the community to have a clear understanding of, of what the program is and how it works, why you're doing it and what you're doing with it and what you're not doing with it. Now, of course, when you sell a drone, it's not in your hands anymore. So how do you retain control over what people might do with the drones that you sell? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So most of our drones are internet connected, um, even if they're not uh, flying out of a dock. You know, you're flying them from a mobile device, which is typically connected to the internet. Um, so we get data and telemetry back, which we're using for you know, customer support and to debug issues and whatnot. In public safety contexts, let's say a few things like, I don't think that it's healthy for a company to be sort of the final arbiter of what people are doing and what they're not doing. Um, it's not to say that we don't have a role to play there, but I think the like by far the most leverage comes in kind of upfront work in the training that we provide, the principles that we've developed, the things that are built into the product um, that make it easy to do some things or not other things. And, and so I think that's where you want to put 
the most emphasis. You know, having said that, like if there are, if we were working with a customer where we saw like repeated patterns of, of abuse and misuse, there are things that we could do, you know, one, just like deactivating features through the cloud, being able, you know, cutting off warranty support, typical kind of like customer provider relationship stuff. Um, so there are a few of those uh, tools available, but, you know, I, and I, this is not a conversation that's unique to drones either. This is kind of like a tech wide conversation of like, what are the roles in companies? I, I don't think in this situation, you want a company to be sort of like the final arbiter of what is happening in public safety. I think that you, we have a, a voice and a role to play and we've been very proactive on that front and will continue to be. So far, we haven't had a situation where there was like a abuse or misuse issue that, that caused us to step in and, and uh, do more. But it's not to say that it couldn't or won't happen in the future as we get to larger and larger scale. Now, Adam, I'm really curious about your, your vision for the future here. But we, before we dive in, into the future, I'd like to take a step back and learn a bit more about how do you decide to start Skydio and how did you even, you know, as a kid, when did you get excited about engineering, science, and from there drones, and, and from there then founded Skydio? What, what's your journey that led up to where you are today? So I grew up flying radio-controlled airplanes, which were kind of the predecessors to drones. I mean, they really were the predecessors to drones. So these were, you know, some people may be familiar with this stuff, but these were typically like balsa wood constructed, small flying things where you, you know, you'd like build them out of wood and then cover them with either uh, this like plastic wrap stuff or, uh, or tissue paper. And I just got super into this as a kid and, you know, really probably unhealthily obsessed with it. So I spent a disproportionate amount of my childhood in my basement building these things. And then I started flying in these aerobatic competitions where you basically get given a set sequence of maneuvers and you fly them as, as precisely as you can. So it's a little bit like figure skating, actually, because you're sort of like doing this routine and you're getting judged on, on how well you do it. I was super into this as a kid. I was fortunate to have my dad loved it as well. So we kind of did it together and traveled all over the country flying in these aerobatic competitions. That's really what got me interested in engineering and flight. And I think, you know, looking back on it, it's I certainly didn't do it because I thought it was going to become a career. But you know, I was fortunate to develop like a kind of intuitive understanding for flight and what's possible and how these flying systems really work. And then going through, you know, engineering education, coupled that with kind of like the rigorous technical mathematical formalisms that describe all these things. And so I think that that gave me like a, a useful combination of skills. And, and I was fortunate to be starting grad school at MIT in, in Nick Roy's lab, the robust robotics group around the time when people were first taking basically RC airplanes and putting computers and sensors on them and then writing software to get them to do smart stuff. Um, and that was just, you know, that was incredibly and still is incredibly exciting to me, this idea that you can try to write software to replicate a lot of the things that an expert pilot would do. Um, so that's where I met Abe Backrack, uh, who's our, one of my co-founders and our CTO. So we worked together for three years at MIT. And then Nick, our advisor, Abe and myself uh, got the opportunity to go to Google to help start Project Wing, which was their drone delivery program so that was 2012. We moved out to, to Silicon Valley to do that and sort of did a lot of the initial work on that project. And the motivation for starting Skydio, as I said before, was this was kind of at the outset of people starting to see all the cool things that you could do with drones. And there were a lot of startups going after various pieces of it. And we just felt like it's really exciting, the potential here, but 
we feel like most folks are skipping over this really important sort of product enabling piece, which we think is going to be foundational. And it's stuff that we we knew a lot about and uh, and loved working on. And that was the, the thrust that, that got us going. And Project Wing at Google, I haven't heard too much from it lately, but it used to be focused on deliveries. And I remember watching a delivery by Google drone in Australia, Australian farms getting yeah. deliveries from drones. Is that project still around? Do you know? Oh yeah, it's still going. They've, I think, gotten up to, to reasonable scale um, and they have a few kind of like trial commercial deployments. Um, yeah. But your focus, of course, has been very different to to put the drones into consumer hands or professionals who just can use it for whatever they are doing as opposed to automating deliveries specifically. Now, when, when I watch one of your recent talks, Adam, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the sketch that you had, the vision for the company that you call the arc of autonomy. Can you explain the arc of autonomy? Sure. So maybe before I get to that, and it's kind of related to the arc of autonomy, I think it is interesting to talk about this, the application space and drone delivery versus what we're doing, which is basically like a flying sensor platform. You know, I think that the there's clearly a lot of exciting value utility to be provided by drone delivery. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Zipline, like you had uh, Keenan on, Zipline to me is really like the most exciting pioneering company there. And I think one of the things that they've done a brilliant job of is finding the applications and the regions where basically the ROI is very high, like delivering critical medical supplies in areas where you don't have a lot of infrastructure is a very high value kind of proposition. But the sort of you know, the urban, the thing delivers a burrito or it delivers like your Amazon package. There is some value there for sure. But if you think of like, what's the upper limit on how much value per flight there? I mean, we're probably talking about like $5, maybe $10. If you just think about conventional delivery costs, whereas, you know, a single flight inspecting a bridge or a wind turbine, the thing that you're competing against there oftentimes costs thousands of dollars and involves like real risk to the people involved. And so and you can do it with a much smaller, lighter, inherently safer system. So I very strongly believe, and, and you can just see this today, that the flying camera platforms are going to reach much larger scale much sooner because the just risk value proposition is much stronger there, which is not to say delivery isn't going to happen. I think it will, but I think it's going to take much longer because it ties together a lot of the hard problems and it does so. It's sort of like a lower marginal value uh, framework, at least for, for most of what people want to do. Um, so that, that very much informs our strategy. Coming back to the, the arc of autonomy, this is basically like a, a five stage framework that we think about where, you know, at the beginning you go with an operator on the ground, basically flying the drone, benefiting from collision avoidance and, and visual navigation to then adding workflow automation with, with products like 3D scan. But then the, the really exciting transition, and I think this is a, a coming theme for the drone industry is going from needing an operator on the ground flying the thing to have having the drone be able to fly itself remotely uh, over the internet. Um, so this is a, a product we call Doc, which we're developing uh, where the drone lives in this internet connected charging base station and can basically be flown anytime, anywhere, either scheduled or on demand without a person needing to be there to control it. And I think that's just an incredibly exciting paradigm, you know, for a lot of the infrastructure inspection work that I'm talking about, this basically means that you can have these things installed and, and flying themselves as needed. But then the future possibility, which we have as sort of stage five on the arc of autonomy, 
is drones basically becoming like a network service where you've got these, you know, you've got dock drones installed all over the place that can be available on demand where the people who use them never have to physically touch them in, in most cases and, and may not even need to, to own them. This is futuristic stuff, but I think there's kind of an analogy to cloud servers where when you're using a cloud server today, like you don't, you know, you it's available, you use it sort of on an as needed basis. You can timeshare it with other people that are using it. Um, and it, it just does the work that you need it to do. And, and you, you don't have to, to actually ever go there and, and mess with it. And so I think that that possibility very much exists with drones. There's a lot of technology and product things need to happen. There's some regulatory things that need to happen to unlock that. Um, but I think that's that's what we see ourselves kind of incrementally building up towards. And that's so intriguing because in some sense right now, you're selling drones, but in that ultimate vision, you might not even be selling drones that people wouldn't even know necessarily that drones are involved. They would just want an image of something or a video of something and request it and then yeah. it would it would show up. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is true in a lot of different robotics categories, but it's important to understand how early we are in the category. You know, it's like you can look at the evolution of like the computer, the personal computer, the phone and get some sense of if you sort of line that up with the drone industry, like I think we're still, you know, we're like in the the sort of pre true PC Windows era. And there's just a lot of there's a lot of stuff yet to come uh, to make the products really like live into their their full potential. Now, talk about public facing communication and education. I saw that recently there was a push on Twitter by you and Skydio for Marcus Brownlee to use Skydio. You're clearly a big fan of his work. Did you get him interested? Yeah. Too soon to say, I guess. Um, I don't know if he watches your podcast. Uh, he should. <laughs> he should. Yeah. So we, um, you know, we're we're constantly working on some new stuff, on new stuff, and and we've got some products coming out uh, that we think would be especially uh, exciting and compelling for both, you know, him to review, but also kind of a lot of what he does of, of video creation. So maybe tease that a bit, like the area where we've gotten most sophisticated with the autonomy to date is in the following and filming uh, cinematic application. But I think there are other kinds of, of cinematic things that don't necessarily involve following a subject where autonomy can do some really uh, special things. Um, so this is something that we've, we've been working on uh, really for the last 18 months or so, if not more. Um, and uh, we have some exciting stuff coming there and, uh, we're uh, interested to get it in the hands of people that we think will have interesting use cases for it and, and uh, might find it valuable. One of the things that's quite unique about Skydio is that I believe roughly 10% of the employees comes from all in College of Engineering. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's, I mean, we, we've grown a lot over the last 18 months. So that may not be took for today, although it's probably true for the engineering team or close to it. Now, when I think about the, the journey of Skydio from, from the outside, of course, not knowing exactly what's, what's been happening on the inside, and I look at the history of, of drones, especially drones used by consumers, it feels like there was, there was a stretch maybe four or five years ago where DJI, the Chinese drone company, seemed like on a path to essentially take a monopoly on this entire space. And I'm curious, how did you experience that period at Skydio and, and how do you come out so strong the way you're here now? The drone industry has been a fascinating landscape really forever, but certainly in the last six, seven years. And you're exactly right. I think that 
you know, DJI is a, a very impressive hardware company that makes really well integrated, uh, you know, drone hardware devices. And I think that, you know, they've executed extremely well. And there was a period, say kind of like 2015 to 2018, maybe 2019. And some people still hold this view today that like DJI is just like totally dominant. They've won the market, the whole thing's over. Uh, this is just, you know, what a drone is and how it's going to be. As much respect as we have for a lot of what they built, we never really believed that to be true because we just knew how primitive the products were compared to what was possible and how important autonomy was going to be to making drones really scale the way that they should. You know, I these things play out in different ways. Like, you know, some investors certainly were, were very spooked by DJI um, and they did, you know, I think that there were a number of Silicon Valley startups that, that had business models that weren't really compatible with what TGI was doing. So there were companies that were trying to build like these very bespoke, modular, like way more expensive drones that just just looked silly next to like a well-integrated kind of consumer flavor drone. So there's certainly like a, a wake of destruction that got left behind DJI. But, you know, in general, I think we've kind of been fortunate the way this has played out because in a lot of ways it's sort of I feel like we should have way more competition today than we do given the size of the opportunity and the like the market dynamics. And I think one of the reasons we don't is because people were so afraid of DJI that the space was like very underinvested from like a venture capital standpoint and from just sort of like an entrepreneur, people trying to start things standpoint. And DJI is still, you know, they're still a, a force to be reckoned with. They still have dominant market share. But I think that that grip is, is loosening because the product landscape is evolving. And then there's also this this just kind of external force geopolitically where these things that started off looking like consumer toys have now become really critical tools for all kinds of, of national security critical applications. And I think it's, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, people realize that it's, it's not healthy probably to be fully dependent on a, a Chinese company, um, both from just sort of a supply chain standpoint and from a data integrity standpoint. Um, and so that's another big theme in the market that really cuts across every segment, certainly like public sector customers, but enterprise customers and even consumer customers to varying degrees think about about this stuff. Well, Adam, as, as you look ahead to the next few years at Skydio and beyond, uh, what are some of the plans that are most in your mind? And maybe you're even you know, looking to get new people involved for those plans. I've talked about this, but I really think that we're very near the beginning of what's possible. And we've built a foundation for trustworthy autonomous flight we're seeing our products now adopted in all these exciting industries with really cool applications, but there's just an incredibly exciting roadmap of stuff to be built, I think, to fully realize that opportunity. There's a lot of like very general purpose kind of platformy stuff that applies everywhere. Um, and then there's kind of the opportunity for more and more specializations for different kinds of, of tasks. So the, you know, the stuff that I enjoy most is, is one, spending time in the field with customers and seeing what they're doing and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't and, and figuring out how we can deliver them more capability and then spending time with the the engineering team. You know, we're fortunate to just have an incredible group of folks across every discipline in hardware and software and, and autonomy um, and all the infrastructure to support this stuff to really bring these like crazy AI futuristic concepts to life and make them useful in the real world. Um, so I'm certainly not neutral on this, but you know, I, I'm fortunate and love the, the job that I have. But I constantly feel like I wish I could spend more time just actually hands-on engineering because the problems there are just so exciting um, and the results are so immediate. You know, we're not 
we have this grand vision for what's possible, but we also have a real business today with real paying customers and every incremental step we take in, in developing products like 3D Scan, for example, and making it work better, uh, just very quickly shows up in customers' hands and, and has a real world impact. And I think that that feedback loop of developing like cutting edge AI robotics and shipping it and seeing it do useful stuff for people uh, is just super, super fun to be a part of. And the only thing that makes it possible is just having a world-class team across all these different disciplines. So we're we're constantly looking for folks that are interested in, in all aspects of that. So there's if you go to our website, it's pretty easy to get in touch through our careers page. But anybody out there that that you know thinks robotics and drones or really just robotics in general AI are excited or particularly passionate about drones and, and wants to be in a place where you can see immediate real world impact uh, for the stuff that you build. I, I think that I'm not neutral, but I, th- I think we've got the best setup in the world for that. Well, what's the URL you would send them to? Skydio.com and then go to the careers page. Great. Well, Adam, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. This has been great.